Now's a good time to remember where the story of tequila started. In 1795, the first tequila distillery was opened by the Cuervo family. And 229 years later, Cuervo is still going strong. Family owned from the start. Same family, same land. Now's a good time to enjoy Cuervo, the tequila that invented tequila. Go to Cuervo.com to shop tequila or visit a store near you. Cuervo, now's a good time. Trademarks owned by Beckless AB to CV 2024, Proximo, Jersey City, New Jersey. Please drink responsibly. I'm Royal Oaks. Next time on Too Many Lawyers, we take on a couple of villains to sort out whether bad stuff is also illegal stuff. George Santos won a seat in Congress by lying to voters, but is that a crime? And Kanye West made it clear he hates Jews. In England, he'd go to jail for that. Here in America, did he commit a hate crime? Listen to Too Many Lawyers on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The John Anik and Kenny Florian Podcast. Gangsters, what's up, guys? Kenny Florian. Oh, my God! Here are your hosts, John Anik and Kenny Florian. Ah, oh, unbelievable. <laughs> it is Monday, December 31st, 2018. Happy early New Year. Episode 186, Anik and Florian Podcast. What a weekend for the UFC in Inglewood, California. You can be sure we will dedicate most of this show to UFC 232. Uh, but we're going to start by letting you know who won our 2008 main event challenge. And despite trailing 130 to 116 on the 12th of November, and despite I thought what well, were some really good guest pickers for Team Anik down the stretch, they just could not compete with Team Florian, who wins five consecutive weeks, nine to three, and then seven to three over the final two shows to win the main event challenge by two points. This is an epic comeback. I feel like you should get to win something significant. I'm, I will do the power hour now <laughs> instead of you, but this just proves with this backloaded schedule that Ken Flo is back in a big way. And anyone who was banging on you for a few wayward picks middle of the year yeah. uh, is eating crow here Monday morning. A- absolutely, dude. <clears throat> you know, I just want to be real humble about this. And <laughs> uh, just, no, I'm not. Are you kidding? No, this no, is no, the no. greatest comeback since the Super Bowl when the Patriots won in 2017, when they came back to beat the Falcons in overtime. That's how great this comeback is because I was completely written off. People were making YouTube videos about Ken Flo's curse. Yeah. Yeah, dude. Yeah. Oh, he, wow. We, it must be our last day on Fox <laughs> Sports because Ken Flo just flipped the bird to the Fox Sports camera. I mean, yeah. you talk about a foot out the fucking door. So yeah. my show prep, <laughs> even for this podcast, is something I take very seriously, right? Yeah. So what did I have to do today? I had to go back and look at the main event challenge fucking standings, right, to see the epic nature of this comeback. I mean, this is a fucking joke. Like, I'm not trying to cuss a bunch because it's our last show with Fox Sports. Like, this is crazy to me that somehow I lost the 2018 main event challenge. So I was up 14 points on November 12th. I mean, I know there were a lot of live events to come, but so... You won that next week six to four, cut the lead to 12, 134, 122. You won the next week two to one, so I'm still up 11, 135, 124 as we hit December. That's when I pushed out a tweet that it said like you were going to lose the main event challenge. Right. So um, don't don't celebrate <laughs> prematurely, ladies and gentlemen. So the next week you win six three. Then it was the nine three UFC 231. You got I think three or four points for Nina Ansaroff beating yeah. Claudia Gadelia. That was a huge swing fight. You had yeah. Max Holloway, the exact method of victory in the exact round. And then crazy how it went at UFC 232. You needed both of those last two fights to come in. You needed Amanda Nunes by knockout, and you needed John Jones. And 
You win the main event challenge by two. I mean, I tip my fucking cap to you, guy. Uh, my guest pickers, man, I thought they did well. But, dude, I, you know, unfucking real man. Again, I just want to emphasize to everybody who listens to this podcast. I'm not, I'm not only going against John Anik. I'm going against every mind and every analyst, <laughs> every gambler, every hardcore fan of mixed martial arts that he brings. And guess yeah. what? I still won. Amazing. I still won. Amazing. What? Amazing. Well, what? You know, is this the third year in a row, Anik? I mean, come on. You know, I, I, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I think you certainly <laughs> if we've done this four years, you're up three to one. You know, I know yeah. I have won one of these things. You beat me but the I don't first know, year. Yeah, and then you and never that was you picking, by the way. And you're, better you off make, you're better off making your own picks. And, you know, this whole Nate Diaz, Conor McGregor thing screwed it up. That's right. That's right, two oh nine, baby. Well, see, I, I, the, the bets I need to win, right? Like the Brian Stan leg waxing bet. You know, thankfully <laughs> right. that one came in, and he had to go do that. But I will honor this bet as I always oh, do. Man. I will do a power hour. I feel like yesterday I ate a fucking Vegemite sandwich, <laughs> right? And now the power hour is like a few weeks from now because it took me eight months to pay off that bet. You, you just Tempo, don't. By do, the way, you don't want to do that combo. By the way, the Vegemite sandwich <laughs> and the power hour would not be good. <laughs> oh, I need to get a base before the power oh. hour. It's not going to be a veg Vegemite sandwich. Yeah, nah. But Ken Flo was supposed to babysit my kids with no other adult <laughs> presence for four hours. And that and that he didn't make it on that, but I digress. Yeah. <laughs> so I will I will pay off the power hour and uh, I'll probably throw up. I'll try to get my beer tolerance up between now and then, but I'm gonna pay <laughs> off the bet. And I don't want to steal Amanda Nunez's thunder anymore. So with respect to John Jones and everybody else, we will get to all of them. But Amanda Nunez, man, I mean, you talk about accuracy and power and confidence, which I guess is hard to quantify at times, right? But Flo, she looked less intimidated in there to fight this world beater, Chris Cyborg, than maybe any fighter getting ready to get into a high-level mixed martial arts competition I've ever seen. You know, I people always ask me who I think is going to win the fight, right? And oftentimes mm -hmm. I have a lean, but I don't feel real good. Once I saw Amanda Nunes step foot inside that canvas, it was like, oh, okay, okay, Amanda's here to fight, you know? And man, did she fight, and she leaves as the consensus greatest women's mixed martial arts athlete of all time. Uh, without a doubt, man. And you look at the context in which, in which she got it done. Uh, John Jones, perhaps the greatest fighter to ever compete inside the octagon, uh, fought Alexander Gustafson, a tremendous contender. And um, he was outshined by Amanda Nunes, who went out there uh, and just thrashed Cyborg. I mean, Cyborg was very aggressive right off the bat. I don't think she respected Amanda Nunes enough, and I don't think she realized that she was going against a faster fighter uh, in Amanda Nunes. And um, once Nunes landed that heavy leg kick and that one-two, man, the fight completely switched into her favor. Uh, and Cyborg, to her credit, kept pressing forward. Uh, it almost like it was almost like she got too emotional in that fight and kind of reverted back to the old Cyborg that we recognized uh, in Invicta and in her early UFC uh, fights, where she would just overwhelm you with aggression. You can't do that against a technical uh, and fast fighter like Amanda Nunes. My goodness, uh, she stole the show. Period. Well, it's interesting because I talked to Jason Perillo after the fact, and you can be sure that one of the things that was put in Chris's ear throughout this training camp was to not go Vanderlei Silva on Amanda Nunes, and, and that's exactly what she did to right. your point, right? She, uh, It's so hard to be perfect every fight night, right? But this was obviously not a great decision. Should have retreated, you know, reset mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. found some way to sort of extend this thing. That's taking nothing away from Amanda. And, 
you know, there are some un- unanswered questions for Amanda, obviously, moving forward, you know, in terms of how she carries this weight potentially into the fourth and fifth round of a championship fight. And it's just crazy for her to dust Rousey and Cyborg collectively in in, you know, this amount of time in less than two minutes, 48 seconds and then 51 seconds, because, you know, you just put so much into sort of. I think the preparation and the anticipation for a fight like this and you expect to see more and then and then all of a sudden this fight is over in a blink. But uh, big picture, man, just a huge win for her. And as Dana said, after the fact, they really sort of were fighting for this distinction as the greatest of all time because yeah. of the resumes that they brought to the table. I guess for me, when I looked at Amanda Nunez's resume, I think her record, I don't know, 13 and four, 11 and four, whatever it was going in. And, and maybe there are more wins than I'm acknowledging, but you know, she lost to Alexis Davis. You know, there were some losses on this Amanda Nunez resume that, you know, cast some doubt, I think from some people as to what she could do in this spot. But, yeah. uh, she proved she's a big game player. She had the better strength of schedule going in. And I Absolutely. think that experience pay dividends but just a a huge effort on a big stage and man is she ready for prime time i think she has a chance to be a huge star i i agree man and and i gotta agree with you as regards to the strength of schedule and for me when i was making my decision it was based on two things first of all the speed of amanda nunez uh the overall skill uh but also her strength of schedule i mean look at who she's beaten uh misha tate she did it in round one ronda rousey she beat shevchenko Twice. I mean, right. uh, the uh, the schedule that she had was way more difficult than Cyborg. First of all, a lot of those women just weren't highly skilled that Cyborg beat. Now, that, that doesn't mean Cyborg isn't a great fighter, but right. um, she just didn't see enough. She didn't see as much as Amanda Nunes had uh, in the UFC's octagon. So, uh, to me, that was... Uh, a telling thing, and, and Nunez ended up pulling through and uh, became the greatest female fighter we had ever seen uh, inside the octagon. And what does this say about Valentina Shevchenko? Amazing. Who is, you know, 20 pounds south of this, the champion, who a lot of people thought beat Amanda Nunez in that second meeting over a hard 25 minutes. Oh, well, a lot of it wasn't all that hard and was pretty strategic, I guess, at times. But mm-hmm. um, that's as dangerous a fight as anyone for Amanda Nunez, right? I mean, with respect to Megan Anderson and potentially who could be next at featherweight, I'm not sure Amanda's going to go back down to 135 pounds. I'm sure you talked about this on the post-fight show. Um, what do you think her immediate future holds? Well, it was interesting because when we asked her if she would uh, want to have a rematch against Cyborg, she said, you know, I don't know. Um, you know, making 145 pounds was actually really tough on me. I, I had to do a lot of work to to gain more muscle and, and do, you know, so I, I don't know. I don't know if it's her, her way of uh, maybe saying she didn't want the fight against Cyborg, but perhaps would fight someone else. It's clear that for Amanda Nunes, she doesn't have a whole lot of competition at 145 pounds. Uh, you know, perhaps against, uh, you know, a fight against Holly Holm, they have not fought, uh, right? So I think that would be interesting. Um, but uh, she does have more challenges at 135 pounds. Uh, yeah. She has been an amazing champion. Uh, and then the other scenario that we kind of talked about was uh, Nina Ansaroff, that if she became the champ in her division, I mean, that they would have basically all the belts. I mean, how, how cool would that be? But, yeah. uh, right. you know, for Nunez, um, yeah, I think she would probably go back to 135 pounds, defend her belt, uh, and then maybe fight someone at 145 pounds. But um, it, it's amazing what she's accomplished. And you look at how she's uh, turned her career around uh, from when she first came to the UFC, lost to uh, Katzengano, and where she is now. It, it's yeah. a great story. 
So it's interesting because when you talk about an immediate rematch, I would sort of suggest that if if anyone is deserving, why why is it not Chris Cyborg? If you want to, you know, Jacek can get one after sure. getting knocked out emphatically by Rose Namajunas. I know that was three minutes as opposed to less than one, mm-hmm. but I feel like Cyborg deserves a rematch. I feel like Rose Namajunas went into that fight. It's different for Nunes because she was a champion. Rose was a straight challenger, right? Mm-hmm. But Rose Namajunas went into that first Joanna Young Jacek meeting knowing she was going to have to beat her twice and probably in six months. And that's exactly what she did. She beat her twice in six months and took the rest of the year off, you know? So I feel like Cyborg has as good a case for a rematch as anyone. The fight I'd like to see is obviously Holly Holm, as you suggested. You know, it could happen at 35 or 45. I'm not sure that it really matters. And Amanda could probably choose which belt she would want to defend. Uh, But Holly has a fight. Uh, It might not have been announced already, but Holly Holm has a fight. So I think Holly should be next. I think that's the real challenge. It's a unique fight, as you mentioned. It hasn't happened. So uh, we shall see. But all hit. Go ahead. I was going to say, and John, how big of a night was it for women's MMA? You you were there. I wanted to ask you. It seemed like it was loudest for the Nunes Cyborg fight. Was am I correct on that? It seemed like the crowd was going nuts, and everyone at Fox was just uh, amazed by by the performance and literally standing up and high fiving when Nunes uh, ended up Insane. getting that win because they were just so excited at what they just saw. Insane, man. You know we're spoiled by all of these great fight atmospheres, but. Saturday night was special. You know, I've always suggested there are certain athletes that I think could own this Los Angeles market for us. I I thought John Jones for sure Mm -hmm. should be banging out the Staples Center two times a year. But yes, when you have that sort of A-list presence and it's packed to the nines, we're sold out at the forum and people just have such great expectations for that fight that when the underdog wins in that fashion that quickly, Mm. everybody's reacting almost like the announcers are and it is straight pandemonium. You know, it was bananas and it's certainly you know it's tricky because i you know when i do interviews kenny it's like people always ask like oh what's the favorite fight you've ever called or what's the best atmosphere you know and it's yeah. like sometimes i answer the most recent one because a my memory's fucking shot as you know but b because you know people ask oh what's the most memorable thing of the fox era ah, amanda nunez knocking out chris cyborg's pretty right. damn memorable right yeah. i mean so there are a lot of amazing things but but a fitting awesome. way for all of us to go out and just all hail the lioness. You know, I live down here in South Florida. I know Amanda Nunes and Nina answer off a little bit and I'm probably better than some. I mean, how do you not feel good for these women? Yeah. They're going to start a family, right? And they're going to have a whole lot more money with which to start that family now. So congrats yeah. to, uh, to Amanda Nunes. Um, John Jones, outstanding performance. You know, I, people want to nitpick this performance. Go ahead. I'm sure if John was grading himself on a 10 point scale, maybe he'd give himself an eight and a half or something. Cause he was a little bit flat footed or slow at times early on. Mm-hmm. But what are you looking for, man? I mean, these guys went 25 hard minutes the last time. John barely got touched in this fight. He wasn't going to engage, as he said to Joe Rogan after the fact, in a 25-minute boxing match. The plan was to be versatile on the feet, use a lot of different points of emphasis, elbows, knees, and everything else. Uh, Pick your opportunities with the takedown, which uh, which is obviously a huge part of the game plan. Um, And by the way, he injured him on the feet, essentially ripped his groin because John throws so many weird kicks and from all these different angles. And that was the beginning of the end for Gustafson. Just he ain't going to beat John Jones on on one leg. I I didn't know that. I I knew he was limping. So that's what happened on one. He said something to Dominic Cruz. Mm. I was eavesdropping a little bit as we were walking out of the arena. He said, I ripped my groin or there was some groin injury. So you never know when a guy's limping. I mean, he didn't give a shit about the shin swelling necessarily. But, yeah, it seemed like there was a groin injury because some thought, man, you know, the end came pretty quickly on the ground. And I think Gus just knew it it seemed an eventuality because on the feet he needs his movement. And 
he wasn't going to have it. Well, it, it kind of makes sense now because when John was in half guard, it seemed like Gustafson couldn't use, I don't think it was his right leg or something. Yes. He couldn't even yep. move his right leg. He kind of just let John, uh, John pass guard so easily. So that actually makes a whole lot of sense. Now, um, for John Jones, you know, when I first saw that performance, I said, you know, maybe he was a little bit flat footed and, uh, you know, he seemed a little bit slower. But as I went back and watched it again, it was a masterful performance, just the way that he completely neutralized Gustafson. He never allowed, uh, allowed Gustafson to get into boxing range. Uh, he took away his game both with his movement, his ability to gauge distance, and his footwork, and his kicking game. And Gustafson just couldn't get anything. Every time he tried to land a shot, uh, he kind of used those tentacles and frames to jam Gustafson up, and Gustafson wasn't landing any shots. And it was Jones who kept frustrating him, and yes, he was kind of uh, looking for a takedown from far away, but just him mixing in uh, those attempts at takedowns, it kept Gustafson guessing, and it kind of shut down his offense, both with those frames and with those takedowns, and Gustafson just didn't have an answer. He wasn't fainting his way in. He was thrown off completely by the movement and the defense of John Jones, uh, and it was kind of this, it built up to this crescendo in the third round where he finally got that takedown and just destroyed Gustafson on the ground, right. and, and par- it was probably partially due to that uh, groin injury, but my goodness, John Jones is just has to be one of the most complete fighters. Why? Wrestling, his striking, um, uh, his jujitsu, his ability to get position, but more than anything else, this is quite possibly the smartest fighter uh, as far as the champions go. The way that he can adjust and adapt and he can yeah. see what you're doing out there, it's just tremendous to watch. And this is a very disciplined camp and coaching staff that treats rematches, obviously, very seriously. But John Jones, you know, has been very loyal, obviously, to Greg Jackson and Mike Winklejohn and Brandon Gibson, right? And he he does lean on his coaches, right? And he is coachable, right? Yeah. And very disciplined during certain training camps, particularly this one, right? So I felt like even though he technically missed unofficially on the first four takedown attempts, you know, he bailed early on a couple of those just because he wasn't going to exert the energy when he knew it wasn't going to get the desired result. So I thought it was a damn good performance. Certainly, I think if you're Daniel Cormier sitting home watching it, um, I think Dana was text, uh, he was texting with Dana pretty frequently, and maybe Daniel thought that John looked a little bit slow. I think if you're Daniel Cormier, you're looking for things in a performance um, to either give you confidence or that you can exploit. So, yeah. uh, you know, but I think John Jones looked great. Best weight cut he's ever had. You know, I remember being with John in, in locker rooms in the past, Kenny, where he's had a real hard time making the weight. And and part of that, a big part of that, obviously, is because he hadn't put the right work in front of that weight cut. Mm-hmm. But, dude, first guy on the scale, 204 pounds. He was smiling all week. He's always loose as a goose on fight night. He probably enjoys fighting more than most guys on this roster. Uh, just tremendous. And I know there's a, a huge backstory that we didn't even get into last week because our show was already in the can. It was taped. I know there's all of that, but as far as what the eye can tell me and when I see this guy in the octagon, man, it is just, man, it's going to take just such a huge effort from someone. I almost think it's going to be like some suicide mission, like Derek Brunson against Robert Whitaker, that, you know, a guy like Anthony Smith is going to get an opportunity and he's just going to either end up leaving on a stretcher or connecting on a big shot. You know, it's like, I don't know how else you beat this guy. Well, I think you're right. And I think that's why a lot of people um, thought that Anthony Johnson would be that guy just based on his style that, yeah, absolutely. Could Anthony Johnson get knocked out himself? 100%. But that threat with his speed and power and his ability to close that gap very quickly 
a lot of people believed he kind of had that best shot of getting it done against John Jones. Right, Obviously, right. that's not going to happen now, uh, and that's all speculation. But um, John Jones is just—he's he, too complete, man. There, there isn't a weakness really in his game at all, and. You know, good luck winning a rematch against this guy. And we have to give credit to his team, Brandon Gibson, uh, uh, Jackson, Winkle John, of yep. course, um, all those guys, and, and the amazing job that they do uh, because um, he has a very smart team around him. And you can see it. When John Jones talks about the game, when you really get him talking about mixed martial arts, you can see this is a very intelligent and knowledgeable yeah. mixed martial arts fighter. Shout out to Izzy Wrestling, That's Izzy right. Martinez, Roberto Alencar. I mean, a lot of people. Yep. Tusa, yeah. <clears throat> so... In terms of, of John Jones now, as we spin this thing forward, John Jones was the guy we always talked about, about being the first light heavyweight and heavyweight champion simultaneously. He wasn't even afforded that opportunity before Daniel Cormier went and accomplished that feat, right? I always thought John would have the desire to eventually move up to heavyweight. I think there's some pause now in, in part because the weight cut went so good, but also because he either doesn't want – I just thought, why not go try to take Daniel Cormier's heavyweight title? But it seems like he's much more concerned with proving to Daniel that he was never the light heavyweight champion and also, I think, maybe more saliently, making sure Daniel Cormier cuts down to 205 pounds before they close the door behind them. Yeah, absolutely. And listen, you know, as a fighter, I think you got to make some smart decisions. You can't lead with your ego – uh, and I think for John Jones, he knows he's best at 205 pounds, and he knows right. Daniel Cormier is best at heavyweight. Would John Jones fight at heavyweight? I believe he would, but if he has the choice, and you know, I think with everything we saw, um, he's going to have the advantage on on kind of where he chooses, uh, you know, to to battle Daniel Cormier. In my opinion, right. I, I think he probably has the advantage there. Um, and if I was John Jones, I would try to do the very same thing. Um, right. so yeah, I mean, I think there's something, there's something in me that, that believes that, that they are going to fight again. I said on the pay-per-view while you were doing your post-fight show, um, okay, DC diet starts tomorrow, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, for Daniel Kenny, I, you know, I just think there are a lot of different things in his head. Obviously he was the most invested observer in, in this fight between Gustafson and John Jones. Brock Lesnar's the big variable, but I think DC's got to prepare for a scenario in which Brock isn't able to fight, you know? So there are a lot of different components to this. We'll continue it on the other side because now with us on the guest line, and we don't want to make him wait. You know, for me, this was really one of the top breakout UFC stars of 2018. Israel Adesanya is going to get a lot of that hardware, but another guy who deserves it for me, and a guy who's just getting started, UFC lightweight contender Alexander Hernandez is with us. Alex, John, Anna, Kenny, Florian here, man. How are you today? Hey, doing well, brother. Appreciate that introduction. My pleasure, man. Well, we, we appreciate your time this morning. So uh, January 19th for you, you're going for a ninth straight win against Donald Cowboy Cerrone. I know you said after the Olivier Obama mercier fight that you wanted to get one more in 2018, but I guess all things considered, uh, three weeks after the new year, I guess it's all right. Yeah, I'm not mad at the way the deck kind of came together. You know, I definitely take this fight over any really options that seemed available in 2018. So, uh, again, the, the pace of things and the foreseeable trajectory is playing in my favor, I think. And so I'm, I'm more than happy with, with our next opponent and, and just, again, the, the crescendo, the climb that I've had ahead of me. 
I know you've talked a lot about being a champion in 2020. You'll come into this fight with a number 12 next to your name. I know you had interest in a guy ranked above you, Justin Gaethje, but clearly some upside in fighting a guy in Donald Cowboy Cerrone who seems to be moving back down to try to, to, try to make one more title run here at 55. Yeah, you know, he's got a lot more on his name right now. He just came off of a huge win on Mike Perry. And I was happy for him to see that, too. And so it's super exciting. He's a huge household name. And uh, I'm sure he'll go down in the Hall of Fame. Of course he will, but but now his highest wins and and finishes. So uh, it's going to be a true pleasure to to face him. And, again, I I think I I couldn't have – I could not have asked and planned for anyone better at this current moment, you know. Alex, is there a – is there an area in, in Cerrone's game where you think he, he's a little bit more dangerous than you? No, you know, he has his game and I have mine. And I'm, I'm so uh, obsessively compulsive uh, about, about balance in everything and, uh, and making sure that there aren't any flaws or uh, discrepancies in my game from, from one element to the next. And I'm ultra aware and I'm ultra critical as you guys are probably, you know, Huh. ascertained by now and so um now i try to beat the shit out of myself long before anybody else can when the lights are on i don't see anywhere on the feet or on the ground that, that i'll be vulnerable and i'm not scared to take it anywhere you know I, I'm, I'm excited i'm excited just to get in his face and break him on the feet on the ground wherever the fight goes i, I can push it i can press him and, and I, I can break him on the ground on the feet wherever we need to and so i'm I'm excited to go in there a little bit more loose, a little bit more comfortable uh, than I was last time and, uh, and really showcase some more talent. Uh, and it's also been a, a tremendous camp. It's, it's probably my first camp that I've ever gone through without, you know, just completely injury-free. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate for that. I'm happy. Well, it's clear you're a student of the game, man, and, and I'm really impressed with your mindset of how you approach the game and how critical you are. Where do you get that mindset from? Um, you know, I just always kind of been like that. I think, you know, I, um, there's certainly been times in my life where I assume less of myself and I'm just kind of through with that shit, you know, uh, thinking less and not, not knowing that if there's anyone that's going to do it, you know, why that, why the fuck not me, you know, why not me? And so, um, I, I certainly started in wrestling, uh, as a kid, just becoming ultra critical of myself. And then even in the business world, just anything I do with my name tied to it needs to be the best. And, and it's just kind of a, a, it's a habit that you start to develop. You kind of just start, you start, you start picking up this attribute, you know, it's kind of character trait. And then just the more that you practice it, the more you implement it into everything you do in life, uh, the more it just becomes routine and habit and it's just a part of you. And so, um, it, it's just the way you got to be, especially if you want to be the best. There's not really any kind of, there's no loose ends that you can afford, especially at 155. Everyone's too, everyone's too damn dangerous. And the reason I'm like that is because I have such respect for, for the game, for my opponents, for, you know, for the evolution of fighting. And so I got to stay on the top end of the curve. It makes a lot of sense, man. And you've become one of the new breeds uh, in the UFC. When did you know you wanted to fight? Um, you know, I started, I started wrestling uh, around, 13 years old and I ended up not going to college and wrestling like I had planned. I, I, got, I just choked. I used to be a real choker in those big matches. And so that was kind of like, as becoming a man, that was a big thing that I overcame. And, and it was a huge, uh, just mental mountain that I had to break through for myself in seeing myself as a champion, not seeing myself as a runner up or a finalist, you know? And, uh, and I kind of started to get that breakthrough in MMA when I was 18 
Um, I ended up not doing the wrestling route. I was just doing the finance route in school. And, like, you get done with high school, and, like, you're just like, I'm just going to lift weights and be a bro, pretty much. And uh, I stumbled into a jiu-jitsu gym, uh, a jiu-jitsu and Muay Thai gym, because my uh, my uncle injured his knee. And so he's like, hey, man, just take the rest of my membership. And so I started picking that up. And it was just one of those things where, like, I wasn't planning anything. I just, I guess I just missed rolling around with sweaty dudes and just kind of the act of combat and contact. And so I, I just kind of, I would just go. And then before I knew it, I was just kind of like, yeah, I can, I can miss this class and pick it up later and just kind of go to, go to, go to training instead. And so I was going during the day, I was going at night. And then, uh, when that ended, uh, fortunately I found my head coach now who I've been with since the beginning, um, at Ohana. And I, I just found myself spending all my time there and you start spending enough time. And then the coaches are like, you know, hey, maybe you just give this a try. So, okay. So we did this little like local TV show thing. And, um, uh, in Texas, kind of like central South Texas for amateurs. And I was kind of doing that. And I was enjoying myself. And I was always on the upper end of the competition, generally beating most people. And so it was just kind of, you know, let's just let's just go for it. And I started doing amateur. You win enough amateur fights, you go professional. And it just kind of kept, it just kind of kept steamrolling, you know. Um, and then there was a time in my career kind of where I, I second-guessed that and then uh, had to do some self-reflection and then brought it back. It's it's interesting to hear you set all of that up. Flo, I wonder if I'll ever get to a point where I miss jiu-jitsu class so much that I just have to go back. I'm not there yet. Uh, UFC lightweight contender Alexander yeah. Hernandez with us here uh, on the Anakin Florian podcast. So you sort of hinted at your obsessive compulsive nature, and I think a lot of it works to your benefit. I know how thoughtful you are, but after you essentially go to Canada, you dominate Olivier Aubame-Mercier. Uh, it wasn't necessarily to your liking. You wanted to devastate him. You don't consider him to be on your level. Um, and you hinted that maybe there were some things in the back before the fight that could have gone a little better in terms of the warm-up and trying to peak at the right time. Was that just, you know, getting mm. to a, a, a stage of your career and, and even just, as they say, you learn every fight and you maybe learn something back there before the fight? What was that all about? Yeah, absolutely. You know, because we are, we are new. And so, I mean... It, it was. A, I think. I think the biggest detriment to me in that fight was. I mean, I had an excellent. I had an excellent week, and I felt excellent uh, right before. It was just. I think we had a timing error. I mean, we 100% had a timing error, and I think that was pretty much the sole attribution of why I felt uh, as lackluster as I did entering that fight. And all my friends, everybody right there by the ring, they saw it in my eye, and and I was having to really overcompensate to try to get myself to where I wanted to be. But it was a great mental test, man. Just kind of fighting through where you feel not incredible. Um, but yeah, we had a huge, I mean, everybody back there, there's Alvarez's corner. There was Kiesa back there, all these guys, and they're just watching us with their jaw open. Like this motherfucker's about to kill somebody. This guy's like, <laughs> this is a hell of a warm up. Like, we were, we were, we were blowing it out. Got a hard sweat, was feeling incredible. And I was, I stopped. I was like, I felt, I felt God sit and I was ready just to kill anybody. I, I, have, I have no fear, no nerves, just completely focused. And, uh, and we got done though. And it was like, okay, shit, we still got about 20 minutes left. I looked at my coach like, all right, we got to start that at least 10 minutes later next time. And so I'm pacing. I ended up pacing. They put another five minutes on. I ended up pacing for 25 minutes and you go out there, they run the reel. Aubin works, walks out. Then I walk out to a bunch of screaming, booing Canadians. They play the wrong song. <laughs> Nothing that's going to stop me from killing somebody, but it certainly doesn't help pick your mood up. There's yeah. like all those Canadians that were like high five you the day before. I didn't, I didn't know they had that kind of, um, that kind of resilience in them, but they, they were definitely, they were aggressive. They were hostile that night. And, uh, and I went out there and it was like, probably, I mean, shit, by the time I got out there, it was almost 35 minutes from whenever I felt my peak from warming up in the back. And so by that point, my knee, I'm starting to feel my knees. I'm starting to feel the aches in my shoulders, my neck. And I was just kind of like, Hey, get back up, dude. It doesn't matter. Like, let's just go. But it was, it certainly wasn't like the perfect time. Like I did in the Darius fight where I just came out hot and ready to go. Um, 
So I, I think we just need to clear the timing, and that's something we've already done. We've already kind of calculated, here's, here's exactly how much we need to do. And I sure as hell would much prefer be on the on the climb, like that crescendo side, instead of on the decline. So like even if I have to cut it short, if I'm still revving up, heck, that, that's beautiful. I, I got no problem with that. But we just we just fell. I, I kind of like hit, hit a good stride, and then we just paced for like over half an hour of just pacing. And so by the time you walk out there, you're like, Okay, this isn't nearly as exciting as it was time, an hour before, you know. Timing is it, 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 timing. It is tricky because you never know how the other fights are going to go, right? So, yeah, it's yeah. interesting. Well, dude, yeah, I, I'll so never it, it, forget. It was, yeah, it was kind of uh, maybe even a rookie year. I don't know, but we're, we're we're cleaning it up. We're tightening it up. So. Ken Flo can relate. He was, he's been in some swing bout situations. That's how long he goes back. Uh, so Alex, the Daryush result, I'll never forget talking to you before that fight, your UFC debut earlier this year in March, you knocked him out in 42 seconds, probably a knockout. That's going to be in some knockout of the year conversations. Um, but what a highlight that was for you and what a way to begin your UFC career. Um, what do you remember about, if anything, your only pro loss split decision, Jamal Emmers five and a half years ago in far Texas. Yeah, that was still me trying to figure out that old slump of myself. You know, I went into uh, my fights very anxious. And I don't think I really knew why I was doing it. It was almost like I was doing it just to do it. And, and I knew I knew it's what I wanted to do. But just like every kid, you know, everybody wants to be a, you know, they, they put their gloves on and they, they do a few practices. And then all of a sudden, you know, I want to be a fighter when I grow up. You know, everybody says that shit. And I, I knew it more certainly than that. But it was like, I didn't know it well enough I, I, to a visceral sense that, I'm supposed to be here. I'm supposed to be doing this. And here's what you're capable of. And now I, I know that more evidently than ever. But back then, it was kind of like, um, I'm sure, I mean, we've all gone through it. People kind of break through that at different points. But it's like, you're going in there, and you're almost going in there like you're in a dream. It's like, you let you let your emotions run you. You let you, your anxiety run you. And, uh, and I remember going in there, and I was still kind of 145 and doing it poorly, you know, to say the least. And, and um, I just went in there. Like, it was like a fog. I remember telling myself, you know, this shit's going to work out. It always does for you. <laughs> and right. and, and Emmers was a real gamer. And so I probably should have had a better mindset going in. Um, but it was a shot. It, it was a fight that I just made silly mistakes. I did more damage. And of all things, I lost just on, like, some petty takedowns that I was just giving up uh, just because my heart was blowing out of my mouth in the first 30 seconds, <laughs> right, you know. And right. it was just, uh, just little things like that that I, I had to get a grip on. I started managing my... I mean, now I'm a whole different human being. Like, I've yeah. evolved three thousands of me. Like, I can't even explain how uh, my approach to life, my approach to everything is just so different. And so, um, yeah, it, it was one of those things where I just went out there and I just didn't show up. I just did, I didn't even come close to showing up. And uh, I don't know if Emmers did, but he, 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 he did enough to get that split decision on me. And, um, and it was, that was like the most bitter. I felt like my heart was broken after that. I felt like the love of my life just fucking slept with a dude in front of me it was like the most devastating i was in a hole i remember watching this gsp uh documentary and it was after he lost to matt sarah and that like helped revitalize it's kind of like get my mind right huh. uh but i like fell into a legitimate depression for a bit and I, and I was so upset over it and now it doesn't mean anything to me i mean obviously having a little right. blemish there isn't nice but I, don't, I just don't think about it uh but yeah i definitely it, it was a huge it was a huge learning lesson just like this mercier fight was it's just a lot just just intel you just take you just take information you process it and you get on the right perspective you yeah know? so you don't you don't think about the emmers fight until dickheads like me bring it up five and a half years later yeah you know? yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, yeah until you exactly. like overly nostalgic petty ass and bring it up yeah yeah you know i bring it up ever. 
I'm like, you know, I bring it up because when I looked today, I thought you were undefeated, to be honest with you, because you carry yourself certainly like an undefeated. I thought you were undefeated, and so I found that. But you're such a young man that five and a half years is a huge segment of your entire life, not just your professional life. And and you've won eight in a row since. And I got to say, man, before we let you go, you know, I don't know that the promotion could pay you any greater compliment than to have you in this fight with Cerrone as the featured prelim on ESPN TV before we go to ESPN Plus. Um, Congrats on on a huge slot and a huge opportunity. And, you know, we all think you deserve it, man. Man, I, I appreciate that so much. It means it means the world coming from you guys, also seriously. And and, and I'm I'm so grateful for it. It's a huge opportunity, and, and I'm certainly not overlooking that. You know, I talk my shit. But I don't talk it in the sense of, you know, fuck your mother talking. I'm talking like, hey, you're just happen to be the poor bastard that's across from me, and I'm gonna have to kill you because that's what I do. Right. I talk I talk from a source of abundant confidence. It's not it's not of like just petty talk. And, and so when I say that, I don't want anyone to over, overlook the fact that I am extraordinarily grateful for this opportunity. They could have given that to freaking anybody. And I, I'm, I can't, I can't be more fortunate. You're right. I'm not even looking for you know, my manager. God bless. I love him to death. You know, he's like, Oh, we should try to get more for it. I'm like, dude, we don't need the money. Right. The money will come. I, I, I'm just blessed that we got this opportunity. I, I'll, I'll go out there, Merch Cerrone, and then we'll talk about paychecks after that. But I'm not, I'm just so, so happy that I was the one that was picked for this opportunity. I'm going to keep doing my damn thing to show why I need the next one after. So, yeah, yeah it, it's, it's a great so position to be in going in 2019. It. Jason House, Jason, that Merck paper. Cerrone, love it, I love it. <laughs> this dude's, I love the confidence, man. Good luck. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Alexander Hernandez faces Donald Cerrone January 19th in Brooklyn, New York. You can see the fight live on ESPN. Appreciate your time, man. We, we can't wait to see it, and I'll see you in a few weeks in Brooklyn, man. All right, look forward to it, boys. It'll be a fun trip. All right, there Later. he is. Alexander Hernandez with us here on the Anakin Florian podcast. You know, he's what the uh, he's like the opposite of what Jimmy Smith would call the happy-to-be-heres, right? He is the exact opposite of guys who are just happy to get to the UFC and have a fight, maybe see how far they can take it. This guy's hell-bent on being champion. Uh, His whole life revolves around that. He's super educated, had a great professional career outside of fighting that he could have, you know, or could fall back on, I should say. But I think he has, has star power written all over him. I mean, you listen to him, educated guy, I mean, just could be a potential star and has a great chance to sort of expedite that process against Donald Cerrone January 19th in Brooklyn. All right, back to UFC 232. I think we were talking about Jones and Cormier and all of that stuff. And I don't know, I guess in this era of two-division champions, right, and seeing essentially the number of two-division UFC champions double over the last several years, I thought maybe that would appeal to John Jones, right? But to your point, staying in the weight class that he's done his best work, obviously. His legacy is entrenched already as the greatest of all time. I'm not sure he necessarily needs to join that list of two-division champions in the immediate future. So uh, he's in a position to call his shot, and I guess for DC, that's the tough part, Kenny, right? Because DC defended the belt that is around John Jones's waist in 2018, and now he as a guy who has answered every call from the UFC, saved UFC 230. I know he made a lot of money to do that, but you know he's now not in even a position you know, to call his shot as the simultaneous two-division champion, right? He, he probably has to move down to 205 to fight John, right? And that's the thing, you know, I, I think that's why DC is kind of so upset about it. Uh, uh, listen, at, at the end of the day, um, you know, John Jones is the current champion at 205 pounds. Um, he's a guy that, you know, forget the Matt Hamill fight that, that doesn't really exist in my mind. 
this is a guy who has remained undefeated. Um, yes, there's some controversy around his name. There is no doubt about that. And, uh, you know, people are very upset about it. And if there was cheating, I would be a lot, I would be very upset about it as well. And, um, you know, I, I get why DC, uh, has that attitude. Um, he, he also, you got to look at DC's side. He had two belts at the, at the same time as well. And DC has done nothing but followed all the rules. He has not screwed up. He's been a great role model, uh, for the UFC. Um, and here he sees this guy that's screwing up in John Jones and, He's getting all the favors. So I, I get it. Um, they're kind of polar opposites, and I think that's a lot of why um, you know they, they make for great matchups and uh, they build up these fights so well. I, I think they kind of have to meet one more time. Um, I, 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 I just think it, it, it's something that's bound to happen. There, there's also just too much money on the table, I think, for both of these guys. And then you, you look at the other matchup, potential matchups for John Jones uh, at 205 pounds or for DC at heavyweight, for that matter, uh, besides the Brock Lesnar fight. There's no other super fights left for these guys. There's no other right, big right. money fights left. Period. No offense to everyone else in, in the in the 205 pound division or the heavyweight division, but you're right. not going to bring in the cheese uh, that John Jones and, and DC brings in uh, when they fight each other. Period. Well, well, and with respect to Anthony Lionheart Smith, who I was happy to see on the desk next to you, you know, if John Jones is minus 800 against Anthony Lionheart Smith, you know, you'd you'd rather him be minus 250 or right. minus 320 against Daniel Cormier and have on paper uh, what people perceive to be a more competitive fight. I guess the only bell that DC didn't answer would have been to save UFC 233 in Anaheim in January, but that would have almost meant after he defended against Derek Lewis sort of having the foresight to stay in shape and start cutting weight so as to be the defending champion mm -hmm. and to have fought John, but it seemed like they wanted to strike with this Gustafson fight while they could. Gus, even though it was 600 days ago, it was his signature win and best performance against Glover Teixeira. And I think it was maybe in some respects the right time to strike with this rematch, even though it didn't prove to be nearly as competitive as the first fight. Um, I was trying to use that as a way to segue to Alexander Gustafson because now the re the ledger reads 0-3 in title fights, Kenny. Yeah. And now, we, you know, there was a groin injury, and but again, inflicted by John Jones, who deserves all the credit. But for Gus, I think this is pretty tough. You know, he's a guy who's flirted with retirement way earlier in his career. I think he felt like he was going to present the best version. And even before he got injured, Kenny, this was an underwhelming effort out of Alexander Gustafson. Um, you know, just didn't seem to have it. And there are always two sides to every story. But I think this has to be a particularly hard pill to swallow for Gustafson in this third, maybe final shot at light heavyweight. I don't know. Um, just didn't have anything for Johnny Bones. No, he didn't. And, and this is a Gustafson that I thought uh, was better. Uh, from the first time that they fought, um, you just couldn't see it on fight night because John Jones was able to neutralize everything that he wanted to do. Uh, and and I, there were some things that Gustafson could have done better. I didn't think he was fainting enough. Um, I didn't think he was throwing enough kicks uh, against Jones. But uh, whatever it is, yeah, this is a tough situation for Gustafson. And, you know, my ledger also reads 0-3 in title fight. So I, I can relate to that. 
Um, I, I just don't see other challenges for Gustafson either. That makes a lot of sense that where he can go in there and, and make a lot of money. Hopefully he did make a lot of money in this fight against John Jones. Um, he had to deal with a lot. And you have to credit this Swedish warrior for even taking this fight. I don't think there were a lot of guys who would have taken this fight uh, given the circumstances. So while John Jones had to deal with a lot of bullshit, uh, Gustafson kind of uh, had to as well because of that uh, chaos that kind of follow John Jones. So a huge credit to Gustafson for even taking this and dealing with uh, all, all the punches yeah. that he yes. was dealing with outside of the octagon. But, uh, you know, I, I would expect him uh, to retire, not because he's this washed up fighter, but just the circumstances of where he's at in his career at this point. Uh, and you mentioned a lot of the things that he had to deal with. He was only taking uh, about one fight a year. Um, and, you know, I think hopefully he's been smart with his money uh, and he can retire, uh, you know, to his family in Sweden and be uh, secure about that. Um, he's been a tremendous fighter uh, and uh, I wish him the absolute best. I actually have you here, Kenny, as two and one in UFC title fights. My scorecards had you beating both Sean Shirk and Jose Aldo. So two and one for me. <laughs> there you go. Uh, See? I just like throwing it, it out oh, Thanks, there. brother. I appreciate that. I'll, I'll, I'll give you that, that money later. So there were so many ways in which, excuse me, we could have led the show today. Uh, Alexander Volkanovsky would have been a great way to lead the show. How about that fucking guy, Ken Flo? I beast. mean, as you know, former rugby league player who competed in the rugby league as a front rower at 214 pounds, a very disciplined athlete. He put his whole life on hold, left a uh, career as a professional athlete to pursue this UFC dream. A lot of people in his ear being like, dude, what are you doing? And he showed you Saturday night exactly what the fuck he's doing. He calls out the number five guy in the world and absorbs some big shots from Chad Mendez, you know, ate them all like a grinder and huge win for Volkanovski. As far as I'm concerned, you know, I'd love to see him fight Max Holloway. That might not be next, but that's a fight that uh, certainly whets my appetite. I, I believe you retweeted it. I think that's how I saw it on Twitter. Uh, but, you, you know, someone mentioned that they heard uh, you on the broadcast mention right. his rugby career, and they found a couple pictures of this dude. And how about trying to tackle that rhino with the, with the ball uh, in Australia? My goodness, uh, he looked like an absolute beast, and he looked like a beast on Saturday night against Chad Mendez. Now, I thought Mendez was really controlling that fight. He was winning the exchanges. He was taking him down repeatedly. The difference was this, is that... Every time Mendez looked up to see if uh, Volkanovski was still there, he was. And not only was he right in front of him, right. he was backing him up. And I think that really messed with Mendez's mind. I, I don't. Th I think Mendez expected him to just cower and go home. Volkanovski's chin, his determination, his conditioning um, was just a, a thing of beauty, man. Um, this guy is, is an absolute beast, um, and he just kept pressing forward. It, you know, Mendez ate some big shots at the end and just crumbled. And for Chad Mendez, who is now retired, and I wish him the best, um, I think the difference was here in this fight was Mendez um, was great at being the hammer, but when it was time to be the nail, he, he just couldn't handle it. Volkanovski could be both the nail and the hammer. 
right. and uh, just a tremendous performance from him, man. And I agree. I think he's a tough matchup for Holloway or let's say this, he's an interesting matchup for Holloway because Holloway hasn't faced a lot of high-level wrestlers, pressure fighters like a Volkanovski, like a Frankie Edgar, like a Chad yeah. Mendez. Now, obviously, Volkanovski, uh, after beating Mendez, puts himself right at the front of the pack to maybe uh, challenge Holloway and, and have that interesting style in, in a very good championship fight. Right. I mean, you think about the way Alexander Volkanovsky's win over Chad Mendez would resonate juxtaposed against Frankie Edgar's win against Cub Swanson, yeah. right? And you can understand why sometimes in certain situations that might result in Volkanovsky leapfrogging Edgar. But yeah, the conversation I think is going to come down to Frankie Edgar, Hanato Moicano, uh, if Holloway, of course, stays at 45, uh, and Alexander Volkanovsky after what he did this weekend. You have a big fight with Jeremy Stevens and Zabit Magomed Sharipov coming up, so maybe Zabit could be expedited if he wins that fight, but I think it's going to come out of that Troika, Edgar Moicano, and, and Alexander Volkanovsky. By the way, we need to get some some archives of Ken Flo from uh, playing midfield for Boston College. <laughs> Wasn't that thick, but I would imagine uh, a little thicker than 155 pounds. And quickly on Chad Money Mendez, uh, who I guess has retired. You know, I kind of would like to see him maybe, I, I still feel like, right, one more training camp to go out with a win. There's so many guys in this top 10 that he would just melt. Uh, I also just want to say, in case he's listening, that my single favorite fight in UFC history, UFC 179, October 25th, 2014, one week after Kenny Florian got married, mm -hmm. by the way, because I remember I went from South Carolina to Connecticut to another wedding. And I was hammered watching Mendez Aldo 2 <laughs> on a cell phone. And perhaps it's my favorite fight in UFC history because I was essentially browning out at the wedding, right? But that's dude, amazing. I had that a reservation. Greatest Dude, it was amazing. I had a reservation for dinner. I was on my honeymoon in Bora Bora, and I'm telling my wife, just hold on. We have one more round, and I was literally watching that fight against Aldo, the rematch, and it was one of the most insane title fights I've, I've ever seen. And Mendez and Aldo just went at it, man. Yeah, I agree. It was It was sick. That is my favorite fight in UFC history with respect to, uh, you know, Hendo and Shogun and, uh, and Jones and Gustafson and anything else. Uh, at least for me, that one still takes the cake. All right, a couple other things on uh, UFC 232. Michael Chiesa, big win by Kimura. One-armed Kimura at that against Carlos Condit, who has now lost five in a row. And, man, you got to feel for the natural-born killer. I felt like he was in a good mental space for the first time in a while going into this one. And Chiesa obviously moved up with style points. Also had a big win by Corey Anderson against Dalir Latifi. Um, and then Ryan Hall. And if we want to circle back to Chiesa, time permitting, we can. But Ryan Hall, heel hooks BJ Penn. First submission loss in the MMA career of BJ Penn, which dates to his UFC debut back in the early 2000s. Uh, but, dude, this is just something that no one is better equipped to talk about than you. As some of our listeners may know, Kenny was supposed to be in Ryan Hall's corner. But when this card got moved from Vegas to L.A., the show, the pre-fight show, the post-fight show got moved from the venue on remote to the studio. So Ken Flo was working in studio. You didn't get a chance to corner Ryan Hall for potentially the submission of the year. So I felt for you. Yeah. You know, I wanted very badly for you to be there, but uh, you kind of texted me. Uh, he'll do just fine without me. And yeah. uh, I guess he did. <laughs> he did indeed. I, I mean, listen, R Ryan Hall, uh, he's a special fighter. And yeah, I see it in Alex Hernandez. You see it in John Jones. Everyone talks about you know, the physical ability of a fighter. Oh, man, this guy's got tremendous size. He's very fast. He's powerful. This is the guy that I want to train. 
I don't look for that stuff. I look for the mind of a fighter and uh, how he how he composes himself, his maturity, what his uh, seriousness is, and, and and how he views his profession. And let's put it this way: Ryan Ryan Hall and I we trained yesterday. Okay, like that's who he is. He's only happy when he's in training camp and he's only happy when he's training. And even though he was away for a couple years, he was training every single day. And, um, you know, no one puts in more time than this guy. And training with him, I've trained with a lot of great jujitsu practitioners, world champions, all this stuff. No one epitomizes jujitsu more than Ryan Hall. Uh, he's, he's an absolute wizard. Um, and the fact that he was able to submit BJ Penn for the first time, you could say what you want about BJ. Yes, he's older, but at the end of the day, you know, he didn't lose his jujitsu skills. Uh, okay. And I thought he was looking good in that fight. He had dedicated three months, uh, of his life of living in Brazil, training every single day with all the great jujitsu practitioners and strikers at Novo Niao. Um, and Ryan Hall still got it done in the first round by one of the craziest submissions you will ever see. Now, I've seen him do that thing probably uh, a thousand times in the last couple of years. He's made modifications in the last year or so to it. Um, but, man, the fact that he was able to pull that off against a Brazilian jiu-jitsu world champion and mixed martial arts legend in BJ Penn, that's one of the best submissions you'll ever, ever see, period. Period. Right. And, you know, people say, well, uh, he's older and, you know, he got cut. I don't care who you are. If he catches yeah. you in that submission, you're tapping. It was just in too deep. It was too fast. And, yes, BJ did roll the wrong way. But even if he didn't, it was just too locked in. He would have been in trouble. You don't have a lot of time when you're an, in, an inside heel hook like that. So um, it was just brilliant stuff from Ryan Hall who continues to improve and continues to impress. So Ryan Hall considers you to be a Brazilian jiu-jitsu in MMA pioneer, which you very much are. And you weren't necessarily known as a leg specialist, but, you know, you're bread and butter. And I've talked to Ryan about this. You know, you were the king of, of knocking guys down on the feet and then systematically choking them unconscious, right? One of the best rear naked choke application artists in UFC history. And I think you and Ryan obviously connect on a very deep level when it comes to all of that stuff way above my head. Um but, you know, personally, I was just disappointed to not have you in the corner, but, but happy that he won and he got the bonus. Yeah. He doesn't necessarily have these championship aspirations, right? All he cares about, essentially, I shouldn't say all he cares about, right? He would love to be the champion sure. and challenge top five yeah. guys. I understand all of that, right? But it doesn't dominate his life. He's a very busy man. He wants to train all of the time. And ranked fighters, Dennis Bermudez and Ricardo Lamas, or Ricardo Lamas, I should say, have turned him down, right? So when he has accepted fights against guys that could get him on a good featherweight championship type trajectory those fights haven't been accepted and kenny i understand why right like if i'm ricardo lamas who's a brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt in his own right you know a guy who's hopping in the butt scoop position and i know ryan has gifts on the feet that we haven't seen and and he'll be very dangerous when those need to be used in a in a more challenging fight going forward Mm -hmm. but I just think a lot of these guys in the top 10, Kenny, are going to turn him down because even though, as Rogan said, you know, he lets go, unlike Husamar Poyaris, yeah. uh, dude, I'd rather get knocked the fuck out than have my leg turned into a pretzel. Well, that's the thing, man. I, I mean, and, and now I forget who asked the question. Someone asked Dana at a press conference. He said, you know, uh, Ryan can't get any fights. And, and Dana's like, he can get fights in the UFC. There's no doubt about it. That, that wasn't the way to ask Dana the question because Ryan wants – 
excellent fighters. He wants ranked that fighters. Right. He wants challenges. He wants guys that he feels that, ah, man, I, I don't know if I could beat that guy. That, that seems right. interesting. That's the guy I want to fight. Uh, so he likes interesting challenges first and foremost, and he wants difficult challenges. And um, he doesn't want to just fight anyone. He wants to fight the best guys. And a right. lot of the best guys are turning him down. And I get it. You know, he's not in the top 15 or top 10 right now, but I, I guarantee you, I guarantee you there's not one person at 145 pounds that Ryan Hall cannot beat. And what's scary is when you go, well, I can fight him, but what's what's scary is the fact that I might not be the same after that fight. If you get a guy like a Mike Tyson who might hit you so hard, you might right. not be the same. Right. Ryan Hall has that ability with his leg lock game where you might not be the same fighter after. You might not be walking the same. You might not be able to kick the same way because he's going to tear your knee in half. Right. And that's just, and it, again, I don't want to name names or anything like, I've seen Ryan Hall train with a lot of great Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioners, amazing jiu-jitsu practitioners, guys that people look up to. And Ryan takes care of business, let's just put it that way, on the mat, and he makes it look easy, and there's just not a whole lot of guys that want to fight him for that reason. Yeah, I'm glad you set that up that way. I mean, Jesus fucking Christ, Ken Flo. It's amazing. It's amazing, contenders dude. Aren't, aren't, I hope these featherweight contenders aren't listening to the Anakin Florian podcast, but it is. there's a lot of truth in there. You know, the only thing I will say, and maybe this is me sort of playing the other side of it, you know, I say this respectfully, but Ryan doesn't really care about having a big fan base, right? So being selective about choosing your fights isn't going to endear him to the masses sure. necessarily, right? But I do think, right, you get enough wins or, uh, you know, get one signature win, you know, then people aren't going to be able to turn him down because he's going to have a number next to his name and they're going to have to take that fight. But I don't know. I think I'm more impatient than he is, right, in yeah. terms of spinning this thing forward because lost his pro debut in 2006 and now in 12 years he's had seven fights. He's won all of them, oftentimes in devastating fashion. Uh, I'd like to see just how far he can take this thing, you mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, very, absolutely. You know. I could totally, I could totally understand that, and and that's one thing you know for Ryan, he gets as well. Um, but he does have a very specific game plan for himself and path and trajectory. Uh, he also trains other fighters and coaches jujitsu, so um, he's busy on that end, and he has other plans, and uh, he knows exactly what steps to take in his career. He's very adamant about that, and. Um, you know, only wants those big time challenges, and I, I hope he gets them. I, and I think this was a great, per a great performance for him uh, against a guy who has accomplished a lot both in jiu-jitsu and mixed martial arts. And BJ Penn, a true legend of the game, who I hope uh, you know retires. Um, and I agree with Dana White; he has nothing to prove, man. He's done it all in this sport. You have yeah. done it all. A lot of people have learned so much uh, from what you've done, myself included. Uh, yep. and, uh, I think his, his legacy deserves, uh, more credit. I love BJ Penn, man. I really do. I, I, I've developed a friendship with him. You know, he's been omnipresent at these UFC events all year, hanging out with Jason Perillo until, as you said, devoting the last three months of his life to going to Brazil and training hard. And he was in shape and back at 55, um, I love BJ Penn, and, and I think maybe that will be the last time we see him. We'll just have to see. Maybe he was hanging on for a UFC show in Hawaii. A lot of people have speculated that was the case. Um, all right, last thing. I want to bring up Corey Anderson's win over Alir Latifi in sort of a greater context. I'm happy for Corey because after getting knocked out devastatingly back-to-back, -back, he's won three consecutive fights. And 
Andre Orlovsky, right, was a guy who was left for dead in 2011, Kenny. And now he's had, I think, five straight fights go the full 15 minutes at heavyweight, right? He's fought an hour straight at heavyweight without getting knocked out. Corey Anderson absorbed some big shots from Alir Latifi this weekend. I know he dominated the fight, but I bring it up in the context of these guys either getting their chin back or us burying them too early when it comes to calling them chinny. Um, I know there's a lot that goes into it in terms of hydration and everything else, but you know, to see Corey Anderson eat some big shots that two fights, it, it didn't seem like he could eat them a couple fights ago. Can you lend any insight as to, you know, why the chin seems to really be there some nights and other times, even if it's the perfect angle, I mean, guys get touched with, you know, a 25 percenter and they're out cold. Well, first of all, a great analysis, uh, uh, you know, by you, an excellent precision on on both of those. That that's the story of both of those guys, right? For Arlovsky, um, you know, everyone said, "Well, his chin isn't the same," and you know, and that was one of the things for me against Walt Harris. Well, why I went with Walt uh, again? I said, "I don't know if Arlovsky could take one of those shots." Well, he can, and he's gone the distance. And it was the same thing for Corey Anderson against Elir Latifi, who landed a lot of big shots. Anderson won that fight, but Latifi probably landed uh, the more memorable exchanges and common nations in that fight right. uh, against Anderson and his chin held up just fine so that was really good to see uh, I thought uh, Corey was just um, had a better overall attack he had more weapons that he was yeah. using it was Latifi who was just looking for that blitz repeatedly in that fight he wasn't active enough in between those exchanges it was like he had three blitzes around and that was it uh, Latifi I don't know if it was conditioning or whatever he's putting too much into those combinations but it was Corey Anderson who was just more mature more patient in his performance and that's why he won and for Arlovsky yes he did lose against a much younger and more dangerous perhaps uh, Walt Harris um, he did look okay you know I, I, it was awesome to see Arlovsky go out there hang in there and make yep. it a, a few competitive fights now in a row uh, in, in the U.S. It's amazing that this guy has been competing for so long and at an yeah. elite level. Uh, Arlovsky is one of the nice guys in this sport as well. So that, that really was awesome is. to see, man. 46 pro fights for Andre Arlovsky. And I'll also say, too, on Corey Anderson, I've always said if I was a pro fighter, the last guy I wanted want to draw is the the condition guy, right? Yeah. I'll take the knockout artist. You know, the, I don't want to draw the most conditioned guy in the division, right? Because Corey Anderson's just always there. Yeah. Um, you got to separate him from consciousness, as, as two of his now past five opponents uh, have been able to do. All right, we got to get out of here. That is it for the week, and that means this is our last show as a member of the Fox Sports family, folks. Uh, I know, Ken Flo, you experienced the goodbyes on the TV side, but this is it for us and the Anakin Florian podcast here on Fox Sports and on YouTube on the Fox Sports channel. Um, so, Kenny and I, we, we've had six years on the TV side with Fox. Now, one year, I think, a little more with our podcast a lot of life experience, a lot of hours, a lot of relationships developed, a lot of people we want to thank today. So I'm going to try to do this as fast as possible. Interrupt me at any time. And really at the core of, of this Fox UFC relationship for me, you know, there are a lot of people on the Fox TV side in particular that knew nothing about mixed martial arts in 2011 when the ink dried on these contracts. And now these people are like you and me, Kenny, they're going to buy every UFC pay-per-view for as long as they live. And now having MMA sort of ripped out of their professional lives is a very hard thing. So, um, we love all of these people, these thank yous in no particular order, but I guess you got to start somewhere. So, uh, 
Thank you to the great Steve Becker, of course, Sonny Salberg, RJ Clifford, uh, our stage manager, Johnny. I'm going to miss seeing that guy. He's the fucking man. Kelly Dixon, Donovan Tarr, Leah Almondia, Denise Daniels, uh, Johnny Cecitelli, who listens to this show, and we appreciate that. Our amazing stylist, Victoria Trilling, the entire wardrobe and makeup department, Gala, and everybody else who painted Ken Flo's face <laughs> hundreds of thousands It's a big of job. Times. It's a big job, yeah. A big fucking job painting Ken Flo's <laughs> face. Uh, Eric Shanks, who deserves so much credit for taking this UFC plunge, leading the charge. John Entz, for all his support, really encouraged me when I got that college football opportunity a few years ago. Uh, Jacob Ullman, Kurt Menefee, who has been on this show before, whom I consider now a very good friend. Certainly going to miss seeing Kurt five times a year on the road. Uh, Bill Richards probably should have been higher on this list. We love you, Bill. Thought he seamlessly took the reins from George Greenberg a few years ago and really was a guy, Kenny, that I enjoyed working with. Uh, thanks to George, of course, uh, our director, Kerry, John Stauffer, our PR go-getter, listener to this podcast. Actually, Stauffer's listened to this show since episode one, so yes. he deserves like eight seconds. Thank you, John. Uh, the entire TV studio team, camera operators, graphic folks, a lot of good eggs in there, Kenny. I know you know them all by by face and by name, so thank you to every last one of them. Yeah. Uh, and then last but not least, our amazing Anakin Florian podcast producers. Janko, your support of this show has meant a lot, obviously. Uh, ben Wasorek has been my right-hand man on this show for a year plus. Um, he has made my life so much easier in so many respects. As a radio or podcast host, you're nothing without a good producer, and Ben has handled a lot for us logistically and and hopefully uh, Ben can continue to help us in some capacity under the table. Sorry, Fox. Uh, Danny Mayock going to miss here and her count us on the air. Jeff Williams, John Hill, love you guys. Neil Foley, Peter Murphy for his interest in the show, uh, his role in making us a part of the Fox family. Uh, Kenny, Kenny, who'd I leave out, kid? I got to have left out somebody, no? Uh, who do we leave out, guys? Dan- That's good. Daniela. Dan- Daniela, yeah. Danny, 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 yeah, 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 yeah. Danny yeah. got a shout out. Oh, Danny did get a shout out. Okay, oh, good. Because you always forget about her. You know, you don't, don't forget about her, man. Messed up. It's messed up. Um, <laughs> no, listen. Well, it, it's been an amazing run, man. And uh, you know, just from this podcast, and of course, everything we did on on Fox Television, they they really portrayed the sport um, with the utmost class and professionalism. Um, and obviously, just working with these guys, they just made everything so easy for us. And uh, can't thank everyone enough. Kenful and I cut our TV teeth. At ESPN, so yes. we we were putting our suits on in toilet stalls, right? So <laughs> Literally, Fox man, they treat you like yeah. fucking gold. But we yeah. appreciate every step of the way. Thank you all, uh, and hopefully, as far as the Anakin Florian podcast is concerned, we will find a new home soon, and soon I should say, and at least retain some of you as listeners at the very least. Maybe we'll do like Wasorik's picks to click or something in 2019, just so he's not out of the mix completely. We'll see. Uh, Ken Flo, happy new year, kid. You Dude. staying on the, on the West coast or what? I am happy new year to you as well, man. Um, yeah, no, no crazy plans or anything, but, uh, we'll see if old Ken Flo will stay up till midnight. I don't know. Oh, I was just going to say over the under. Of, What's the over under, Anik? Oh, no, I would bet that you'll be fast asleep by midnight Pacific. You're out like a fucking light. I know. I know. I will be. I mean, and, I, and what the, the, the worst admission is that I will be asleep by 6 p.m. Pacific, <laughs> 9 p.m. Eastern. I'm done. This is one of the worst Three nights kids. of the year. If you, have, if you have children or dogs, oh, yeah. July 4th and New Year's Eve are some of the worst nights of your year. I will have four white noise machines going, praying that my baby doesn't get woken up. You know, And anyone in Boca Raton, Florida, law enforcement, can we shut this thing down a little bit early tonight? <laughs> Can we not do fireworks till 2 a.m.? <laughs> We're officially oh. old now, dude. It's it. It's over. All right. We got to get out of here. Uh, we will be dark next week. 
Um, hoping to have some news soon on a new podcast home for us. With that, we wish you all a happy 2019. Thank you all for listening, for watching, and we hope to talk to all of you again soon. Until then, yo later. The John Anik and Kenny Florian Podcast. Sports betting is sweeping across the country faster than the coronavirus, and wagering week is your antidote. I'm Tom Barton, and I'm a veteran sports analyst and respected sports handicapper who helped build ESPN's brand. I've been recognized and awarded by Pro Football Weekly and Gaming Today magazine as the honest handicapper. Let the other guys give you the same old boring sports talk with the same tired storylines. We'll give it to you straight here every Friday on Wagering Week. Don't gamble with other podcasts. Let Sports Garden Network's Wagering Week help your bottom line. Now's a good time to remember where the story of tequila started. In 1795, the first tequila distillery was opened by the Cuervo family. And 229 years later, Cuervo is still going strong. Family owned from the start. Same family, same land. Now's a good time to enjoy Cuervo, the tequila that invented tequila. Go to Cuervo.com to shop tequila or visit a store near you. Cuervo, now's a good time. Trademarks owned by Beckley SAB to CV 2024, Proximo, Jersey City, New Jersey. Please drink responsibly.